Hey, it's time to get in the spirit. VegCast. The spirit of VegCast 76. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Well, we have an even fuller menu than usual here for this VegCast. It is our top of the decade Interview with Gary Francione. You may recall our interview at the top of the year back in 2006. We're checking back in with Gary. Love him or hate him, you have to pay attention to what he's talking about uh, because it has ramifications in many different areas of concern to vegetarians and vegans. And we're going to be talking with him for quite some time on this VegCast. So long that we won't have a science fact. We will break up the interview at one point to hear a song from Dada Veda, a little musical interlude, and then we'll get back into the various ideas uh, that Gary Francione is uh, putting forth, and uh, that will pretty much take up the uh, bulk of this VegCast and then some. So we'll be getting back to our regular format next time. But for now, this will be a super-stuffed VegCast sponsored by Luna and Larry's Coconut Bliss, who remind you there are many ways to achieve bliss. We use coconut. So now I invite you to sit back and relax and crank up that mp3 player as we start to unspool the extra long interview which will comprise just about all of this 76th okay we're right here in uh, gary francione's study with his uh, some of the members of his canine family and before we start, Gary is going to say a word about that. Those of you who are listening, you may hear canine noises. We have five canines here. They are all behaving reasonably well right now, um, but we don't know if that could, that could change at any moment. There could be and an outbreak. There could be an outbreak. And we have a new canine named Christine who is sitting right now very quietly by Vance, but that could change very, very quickly if Christine decides that she wishes to make noise. And since she is a large dog, she will make copious amounts of noise. Lovely dog, and let me just say, uh, those of you who are listening, if you can adopt a dog or cat or rat or ferret or mouse or fish or anybody, please adopt because there are lots of animals that need homes. It's a perennial problem, but it's particularly a problem in this time of economic recession. So let me get my plug in for adoption, because I think it's an important part of animal rights activism. Okay. All right. All right. It's January 2010, and uh, as we last spoke here in January 2006 about the state of uh, animal rights, animal Was advocacy. it that long ago? It was that long ago, I promise okay. you. Okay. And now I thought we would, I would come back, we would look at uh, what's, what's been going on, what you see, how you see things uh, going on. We'll talk about some of the projects uh, that you're working on. But just to start out, uh, one thing I want to be sure you had said, I'm going to get into podcasting, I'm going to do it, and then years and years went by, and you finally now... You're you're a real podcaster, so I wanted to officially welcome you to the, well, thank the podcast you. Thank you. Uh, yes. click. Yes, I've now <laughs> learned the secret handshake of podcasters. <laughs> okay, and of course uh, we'll have the link to Gary's podcasts 
uh, on our page. But um, you know, you you actually are responsible for my podcast because oh, really? yes, because what happened was um, the reason why I stayed away from it so long was that the technology overwhelms me. I mean, I can turn the computer on and I can turn it off, and I can use word processing functions and basically those sorts of things. But that exhausts my technological abilities. And and even though uh, Bob and Jenna of Vegan Freaks uh, graciously set up some equipment in the house. I couldn't figure out how to use it, even though Bob left me uh, very detailed written instructions, and I still couldn't figure it out. So uh, it was in my conversation with you uh, in which you suggested that I simply get a, a, a small player, like a like an iPod Nano, which you suggested. So I went immediately upon hearing your recommendation. Uh, I got in the car and I went to the Apple store and I got an iPod Nano and that's what I've been doing the podcast on. It's great because when I feel motivated to want to do one, it sits here on my desk, I turn it on, I talk, I finish talking, I press the button and I send it off to Elizabeth Collins in New Zealand who takes out, you know, whatever extraneous noises uh, are there. And uh, so you are responsible for that because I probably... I uh, would never have done it if I had to use anything more sophisticated than the MP3 player. Okay, well that's great to hear. So you Thank are the you. father of the abolitionist <laughs> approach podcast. No, the the Godfather. Yeah, the, uh, all right. Yeah, um, but well, let's just uh, talk about. I mean, since we last talked, the Gary Francione phenomenon has uh, has kind of taken off worldwide. I mean, you were you were even saying then that. There were some people in Spain who were translating your things, and I've seen those are getting getting around, getting bigger now that your podcast, and that's going out worldwide. Are you uh, are you happy with you know the way more people seem to be picking up on the abolitionist message? Sure, of course. I mean, obviously, as one goes on with work, it changes and it becomes hopefully more sophisticated, and you iron out wrinkles and whatnot, but. The basic message that I'm I'm articulating is one I've been doing now since the early 1990s. The difference is that uh, until the Internet really came on the scene, uh, the large organizations really effectively controlled uh, communication. So if if they didn't like what you were saying, they didn't invite you to the conferences, they didn't promote your work, they didn't interview you in their magazines and whatnot. So so they were really capable of controlling and, and, and pretty effectively did control uh, communication among advocates and, 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 and particularly those who were coming into the movement. Those people who were coming into the movement were basically exposed to what the large organizations wanted them to be exposed to. And they certainly didn't want them to be exposed to me because I was basically critical of them all because I thought that they were going in the wrong direction. And I thought they were, you know, they were, they were following, uh, welfareist reform, uh, 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 strategies that were ineffective, morally unjustified, and counterproductive. And then the internet uh, emerged as sort of an effective tool to lower the opportunity costs of communication and to allow people to form communities outside of these institutional structures. And what I found very, very quickly, um, you know, I had, I had a website, but it wasn't a very good website. And then Randy Sandberg offered to volunteer to, to set up a, a really good website, which he did. And um, we've now that website is getting thousands of hits. Um, there is an emerging movement all over the world, an abolitionist movement. It's, it was it was clear to me this was a good idea, and it was an attractive idea. It was an idea that people would would embrace. 
uh, it made sense. I mean, there are a lot of smart people out there who realize welfare reform ain't going anywhere. There are a lot of people who understand that if you if you believe that animals are members of the moral community, the very least you can do, not the most you can do, the least you can do is you stop eating them, wearing them, or, conf- or, or consuming them. So there are a lot of people out there who agree with this, and I get probably, I don't know, I get hundreds of emails every day. I cannot respond to these things. I, respond, I try to respond... Uh, the best I can uh, to the most number of people that I can respond to. And I have a lot of things, you know, a lot of canned answers that I, you know, just cut and paste and put in because a lot of the questions are the same. But, um, but you know, the, the, the number of people who are visiting the site is extraordinary. The number of people who listen to the podcast is extraordinary. We're getting, you know, things are going on now in, in, in France, in Germany, in Spain. Uh, we just put up the theory of animal rights in Japanese last week. Uh, the pamphlet, the abolitionist approach pamphlet, is in, I don't know, 12, 13 languages. The, uh, the, the, the world is vegan if you want it is in 22 languages. Um, we're, getting, uh, uh, we're getting Hindi script. We're actually getting a, uh, a Devanagari script uh, uh, a version of the uh, abolitionist approach that will be put up uh, shortly. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, going, it's, it's, it's really spreading, and it's spreading quite, uh, quite widely. Well, let me ask you for something that I mean, you. Uh, we've talked about this before about the, uh, you know, the Gary Francione movement, and you not wanting to be a, a figurehead or a quote unquote nope. leader. I don't want to be a leader of nothing. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, other other movements or uh, whatever you want to call them get things done, get things accomplished. I'm giving the uh, the mm-hmm. air quotes there. Um, usually by having a centralization, having somebody who attracts attention and is like the front person, the spokesperson, they have these big attention getting conferences and so forth for, for this movement, what is, will we know that we've reached a tipping point? Is there something that we're looking forward to happening or it's just all going to be a bunch of, you know, a thousand points of light kind of thing? So I look, uh, you're correct to say that most of the time, what gets done gets done through centralized structures with leaders and, fo- and, ver- and, and things which, are, which provide focal points. I don't think much gets done. And I think that that way, I, I think the whole model of leaders and organizations and all this sort of stuff uh, providing, you know, generating doctrine, um, which is then embraced by a group of unthinking followers, uh, is crazy. It doesn't get anywhere. Uh, what I want is for people to embrace these ideas because they make sense. I mean, I find it, I, I get, I, I, I laugh out loud sometimes when I see these, these accusations that this is somehow, uh, you know, p- people following me or this is some sort of cult or whatever. I'm a law professor. I don't have any organization. I don't have any, you know, no, there's no organization. Nobody's contributing money. I am one person. Um, I am a member of the faculty of Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey. I do this all myself. I do it with volunteers. I do it with student volunteers. I do it with non-student volunteers. I don't have an organization. I just put ideas out there. You like them? Great. You don't like them? That's fine. Whatever. But um, my view is nothing's ever going to change as long as we're looking... As long as we're looking to leaders to change us or organizations to provide us with truth and all that sort of stuff, nothing's ever going to change. The way things are going to change is by individuals becoming leaders themselves and by individuals changing their own lives. You know, everybody wants change. Nobody wants change themselves. I think Tolstoy said that, so um, I I like it. And if I could get away with saying it without attributing it to Tolstoy, I would. But somebody out there will say, hey, Tolstoy said that, and then I'll, I'll feel embarrassed. So I think it was Tolstoy who said that. 
that uh, you know people always think about change, but they don't think about changing themselves. And I think that you know what this movement is about is about changing yourself. Um, and it's about you becoming a leader and you educating other people. I mean, the basics of the evolutionist approach are simple. That is, that we have no moral justification for using any animals, however humanely we do so. That um, animal, wel- animal welfare reform doesn't work. I mean, not only is it not only is it immoral to use animals, but the but the regulation of exploitation doesn't work. hasn't doesn't work in human context. Certainly doesn't work in non-human context. Particularly because animals are chattel property, and you have the same sorts of structural problems that you had with the regulation of human slavery. That never worked either. Uh, the abolitionist approach takes the position that speciesism is like racism, sexism, heterosexism, and other forms of discrimination. These are all forms of violence. They should all be rejected. There is no there is no conflict between human rights and animal rights. There is indeed a confluence of human rights and animal rights. There's a convergence, and and um, it treats veganism as the moral baseline. It's not the fir- it's not the last step. It's the first step uh, in recognizing that animals are morally significant, and it rejects violence. It rejects violence because for First of all, violence is the problem. Violence isn't going to be any part of the solution. And also because violence is just intellectually ridiculous. I mean, think about it. Uh, you can burn down, you know, ten slaughterhouses, and if the demand is there, the, the, they'll be rebuilt, or or some other slaughterhouse will expand, or ten other slaughterhouses will expand to supply the meat. So, I mean, the idea of focusing on the institutional exploiters is is ridiculous. It, you, if you really want things to change, you have to you have to focus on. All of us, the people who create the demand, we're the expo- we are the exploiters. The, the the institutional people are capitalists. They they're just making a buck. Uh, and if they can make more money selling bananas than beef, they'll sell bananas. So they're sort of indifferent to it. We have to stop demanding the cow flesh before they start selling the bananas. And so the idea that you know we're gonna we're gonna use violence against them to get them to stop selling beef is just is is uh, to call it stupid is is a, is an insult to stupid ideas everywhere. But um but but anyway. So, so those are the basics of the okay. abolitionist approach. All right. Well, your your talk about violence and about organizations brings up uh, one of the big things that's happened uh, Francione wise since uh, 2006, which is uh, you became <coughs> affiliated with the uh, with the American Jane movement. At any rate, I'm I'm not clear on how that all. Fits together. Worth. Well, I have for 25 years been. Um, I have embraced the concept of ahimsa. Uh, it is just now that I'm doing more academic work in the area of Jainism. So I'm speaking more now at Jain events because I'm writing about things. Uh, but I have for a long time been uh, deeply attracted to the Jain concept of ahimsa, which is in certain ways different from. The, the, the notion of ahimsa or nonviolence shows up in in a number of different uh, philosophical or spiritual systems. Its most, I think, pervasive and, and most uh, profound articulation occurs in Jainism. Interestingly, um, the Jain idea is is in certain ways more present in uh, certain forms of Christianity than it is in even some other Eastern traditions. Uh, so, so I mean, the, the, the concept of ahimsa um, is, uh, it, it, as it's articulated by the Jain, by the Jain um, 
philosophy is is deeply attractive to me and has been for 25 years. I mean, I, I, I have always been, I came out of the anti-war movement, and, you know, and, and we all talked about nonviolence and Dr. King and Gandhi and stuff. And, but none of us really knew what we were, I mean, it was very superficial. It was, you know, as, as, um, as is often the case when, when ideas get borrowed like that and when you have idea transplants like that, they, they get made very superficial, particularly in this culture. And um, and so I didn't really understand, and I don't think most of us did in the 1960s, uh, what nonviolence really meant. Um, you know, it was a mantra that we repeated because nobody wanted to get drafted and go to Vietnam. So it was a convenient, it was a convenient uh, uh, mantra to utter. But as I got as I as I got older and then became a vegetarian. Uh, I started thinking about what really what this meant in my personal life, and I started reading. And at the time, there was actually very very little that was available about Jainism in English. And I don't read uh, Hindi or Prakrit or, or those things. And I, you know, I have I have embraced as a spiritual matter the concept of ahimsa for a good part of my life. Uh, it's just now I'm doing more work on it and more academic work on it and more writing about it and and. Um, uh, and and so I'm, I get invited to speak at conferences more because I'm I'm writing things. But you, I have to say, you you went to this this conference, delivered the keynote address, and said, "I am a Jane." Yes. So you're actually, it seems like you're now your whole. Uh, Personal identity, it seems to be. Well, my personal my, my personal identity. Well, yes, my personal identity is involved in a hip set. It has been for years. I mean, you know, I have I have long believed uh, in the concept of nonviolence. I mean, to the point where I was once, you know, and this is twenty five. This is I don't know twenty five, twenty four years ago. I was assaulted by a vivisector at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was then teaching. And I refuse to hit him back. I mean, I, I, and that is the central principle. I mean, remember something about Jainism. Jainism doesn't have a central church. I mean, it's not like the Catholic Church or, or, or any, uh, it does, there, there is no, there's no central doctrine. There's no, there's no Dalai Lama of, uh, of, uh, of Jainism. Um, and, and as a result, uh, I consider to be a Jain anybody who regards Ahimsa as the sort of the metaphysical reality of the universe, which I certainly do. I mean, I really, really do do accept that. Um, you know, I mean, having said that, I think, I mean, you know, I want to make it clear, uh, because people then say, well, my opposition to violence is based on religious views. And the answer is, I think, I think that violence is, is inherently wrong for spiritual views, for spiritual reasons. Yes, that is correct. But I also think that violence makes no sense. I mean, put aside, and I want to make this really clear to people, put aside the issue of whether or not you think nonviolence is, a, is, a, is an epistemologically true uh, moral principle. Put that aside. Put it aside. Put, it, put aside whether you think Ahimsa describes in some ontological sense metaphysical truth about the universe. Put that aside. Bottom line is, as long as people regard animal use as normal in the sense that breathing air is normal and drinking water is normal, then as long as that demand is there, focusing on or, or, or using violence against institutional users makes no sense. All right. And so, I mean, it just doesn't as a logical matter, even if I did not believe what I do believe about the inherent immorality of violence. Okay. All right. Uh, well, does that get into the human rights, animal rights 
connection. I'm yeah, sure. we talk about it. it, it um, uh, I do a course with Anna, uh, and we did it last semester. We had 60 students, and we are going to do it again this semester. We have semester starts tomorrow, and we have 81 students pre-enrolled for it. I suspect we'll probably have close to 100 once the semester get started as of tomorrow because we always gain, we never lose them. And um, the course is called Human Rights and Animal Rights. And we look at, um, first of all, we do a, a section on um, moral philosophy. We talk about various forms of moral philosophy. Uh, we talk about rights-based philosophy. We talk about consequentialism. We talk about virtue theory. Um, and uh, the students get exposed because a lot of them haven't had uh, uh, philo philosophical training as undergraduates. So we give them sort of a, uh, 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 an introduction to moral philosophy. And we talk a little, little bit about the relationship between law and morality. And then we start talking about racism, sexism, heterosexism, capital punishment, uh, terrorism, things of that nature. And we talk about the moral aspects and the legal aspects, because remember, these are, these are law students. And then we, we go into speciesism and we talk about, uh, the animal, the animal issue. So we bring all of these things together. I have just finished grading, uh, the 60 some odd papers that we had last semester. As a matter of fact, I just finished about 10 minutes before you walked in. They are spectacular papers. As they, uh, the, the students, we have great students at Rutgers, uh, but I must say that, that we are consistently impressed every semester because what they do is they have a choice of either writing a paper or doing a take home examination, uh, where they have, where they write essays. And, and, um, the quality of these, these, uh, these essays and papers is just phenomenal. And I think that a lot of students have never really been exposed to this thing that, you know, I mean, and this is something I hear consistently from them. Um, you know, we're living at a time where um, there's a certain sort of moral nihilism uh, that I think in many ways you and I did not, I mean, you and I didn't grow up with that. Um, we grew up believing um I don't want to say that we were moral realists because maybe we never even thought about it in that sense, but but we didn't think about morality as being similar to whether, you know, uh, you like classical art and I like modern art, you know, that it's a question of what you like. And I think the, pre the, the young people now, many of them, the, the place where they're at at this point in their lives is when you ask them about morality, they think you're asking them about some sort of aesthetic sort of thing. And they say, well, well, what's right or wrong is what you think is right or wrong. And I always have a quick comeback to that, which I'm sure I will say this week sometime, probably Tuesday, my first class, <laughs> um, uh, in which I say, okay, fine. So like the Holocaust was was bad if you think it was bad, and it was okay if you thought it was okay. And then they sort of like get a little get concerned about, ah, that's not, you know. Torturing a small child. Hey, look, you know, if you think it's okay, it's okay. If if you think it's not okay, it's not okay. Well, but that's illegal. What if it weren't? Well, you know, what, what if it weren't? I mean, are you telling me that that, that if, you, if you were in a place, if you were taking a vacation in a country where there was no effective legal system, and uh, you were offered a, a, tor a, a child torture, whether you did that was just a matter of, you know, your aesthetics. Whether you, if you like it, you do it. If you don't like it, you know, go to see a movie instead. What becomes clear to me is the large number of students who have never thought about those sorts of questions before. Hmm. And we're dealing with smart kids. We're dealing with, with, with students who have gone to fine undergraduate universities. Um, and, and, and yet... 
they've never really confronted that issue. And, and, and to the extent that students do have moral views, they're very, very tightly connected with their religious views, you see, and, and, and with, with theistic views. And so we get into this whole discussion about, well, you know, is, is, is what's right or wrong what God says, uh, in which case if God tells you to take your child to Mount Moriah and, 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 and kill the child, then that's what you should do because that's right. And the students get concerned about that and they say, well, you know, if God told us to do bad things, that wouldn't be right. Okay, fine then. Well, then you know, then 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 somehow uh, we're, we're we're struggling towards recognizing that there are certain things which are right or wrong. And I mean, I I take I, I make no bones about it. I'm a moral realist, and and I have no problem talking about moral realism and and rejecting relativism and and uh, and and various other uh, things which are inconsistent with realism. And we talk about these things in the class, and we talk about how. Um, you know, we all agree, uh, cross-culturally, you know, gender-wise, race-wise, doesn't matter-wise, we all, uh, see pain and suffering as something which is undesirable. And, and we all accept that its imposition requires some sort of justification. We may disagree on what the justification is, but, um, we agree that a justification is required. And so it's a really exciting class. I have to tell you, I, I, I've been teaching, this is my, I, I, I think my 26th year in teaching. And I love teaching. And uh, I love Rutgers. Uh, and I like everything I teach. I teach criminal law and I teach evidence and I teach criminal procedure and I teach those sorts of courses. But uh, this class is, uh, for me and for Anna, such an enormous joy because there isn't a, a class that we have that, that doesn't generate a lot of enthusiasm, excitement. Sometimes people get upset. You know, we, we you know, we, we, when we talk about issues that are sensitive, um, uh, affirmative action is always uh, one of those hot button sorts of issues. When we talk about racism, uh, there will be people who have strong views both ways on affirmative action, and sometimes those discussions get somewhat heated. But they are always civilized, and um, and, uh, and and I I feel that um, pornography is another one uh, because I I challenge pornography as commodifying uh, 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 women and and um, and how we you know we need to sort of rethink that 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 always because you got a bunch of law students and they say yeah what about the First Amendment you know what about uh, uh, censorship and I'm not talking about censorship I'm not talking about legally regulating and I'm talking about morally is it an acceptable form of communication and so we get into lots and lots of different issues and it's it's uh, it's an enormous amount of fun and it's as I say for many of these students it's the first time that they have been exposed to these sorts of ideas and and uh, and I, I really think Vance to be honest that um, the moral nihilism of of a lot of young people, the fact that moral issues have just sort of escaped the, 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 you know, the radar screen and people watch these incredibly violent movies, um, and play these incredibly violent games, these video games without ever thinking about what it's doing to them and how it's affecting their thinking. I I find it really quite sad. Well, do you thought, do you see any way to reverse that? I mean, it almost seems like if we have a culture where, uh, Violence and uh, you know separation from other things is is just increasingly part of the wallpaper. Is there? Can you yeah. see any way of? Yeah, choice. It's back? called. It's. I mean, it's it, it it's it's. We have the free will. I'm not a determinist either. Um, we have the free will 
to decide to reject that. And, you know, I don't watch violent movies anymore. I used to watch horror films when I was younger. And and um, now I don't watch those things anymore. We are increasingly requiring greater and greater amounts of stimulation. We're sort of in a bread and circuses phase. And it's, you know, we need more and more and more and more and more violence. And what I think we need to do is we need to recognize uh, what's happening to us and how this stuff is corroding the hell out of us spiritually, morally, however, whatever you want to say, Ali. Um, this stuff is corroding us and, um, and we have to make the decision not to consume it. And, uh, because it's all around us and we have to make the decision. We can make the decision. You see, this is the, this is the, this is the great thing about, 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 uh, being, uh, having the ability to make the choice. We can make the choice not to consume that stuff. I'm not going to, I mean, you know, yes, there are, I don't know how many versions or how many, how many uh, iterations of Saw have come out and there'll probably be, you know, 18 hostels by the time I, you know, uh, get much older and, and, uh, and, you know, there's, they're remaking the Halloween series. Just don't watch that stuff. Um, and, you know, and but I let just, me, let me just cut in. Is there any way, I mean, you're a law professor and you, you know, you certainly respect the First Amendment. I do. Um, and so I, I assume that you would reject any um, attempt to impose uh, this choice or lack of choice on people with this I'm not kind of thing. imposing but, it, but how other than a given person choosing not to consume it, is there any way to get that message out along with the vegan message, along sure. with whatever, that could have actually the effect of <laughs> reversing this, sure. this decline. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I think, interestingly, most of us subscribe to religious or spiritual traditions which emphasize nonviolence. I mean, the problem with Christianity is, I mean, I mean, you know, one of the main problems with Christianity is it's been perverted to the point where, um, you know, the message of nonviolence has been lost and Christianity has been made consistent with uh, with capitalism and uh, and and uh, we now think that if Jesus came back you know tomorrow he would he would want to be an investment banker or something um, and we've left the playing field to to the radical right uh, who I think have you know really twisted and perverted the message the, the fundamental message of Christianity which is nonviolence but the bottom line is is whether you know whether we're Christians Jews Muslims whatever Jains Buddhists whatever um, we all subscribe to um, traditions which emphasize nonviolence and we just need to take that seriously a little bit more you know it's, it's you know you know Vance it's like when I wrote Introduction to Animal Rights I mean the whole theory of the book which which you 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 grasped immediately was that what I was trying to say in the book was we already accepted it was wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering on animals. All we needed to do was to sort of get serious about that and take that, take those ideas seriously. And that would provide the solution to the problem of animal exploitation. Well, you know what? I mean, we've got the answers. We've got the solutions. They're right in front of our faces. Most of us, most of us, most of us claim to subscribe to these various traditions, whether they be moral or spiritual or religious, that emphasize the solution to the problem, which is nonviolence. Once you, once you really embrace an ahimsa ethic, however you do it, in whatever iteration it comes, um, then these things don't these things don't hold out a whole lot of attraction for you anymore. And and um, and I think that once you ask people why is it that you find these things 
entertaining? Why do you find these movies entertaining? Or why do you find these reality shows entertaining? Or why are we sort of obsessed with all the lurid details of the lives of, you know, various people? Um, and, you know, they, when they're asked the question, people are sort of, sort of shocked by ask, by the question being asked. And they say, yeah, you know, you're right. And so I'm not in favor of censoring anything. I think the First Amendment, unfortunately, um, doesn't protect very much anymore um, because after 9-11, um, political speech is basically now up for grabs. And um, and so I think in many ways the, the First Amendment is there, to, to uh, unfortunately, primarily to protect um, pornography. But um, But I'm not, you know, look... Uh, whether you're talking about regulation of alcohol, whether you're talking about the regulation of drugs, whether you're talking about the regulation of pornography, doesn't matter. Re government regulation and legal regulation generally doesn't work. You need a, a, sh a paradigm shift in how people think. I mean, you know, everyone says to me, "Well, you know, would you make would you make eating animal products against the law if you could tomorrow?" And the answer is that would be insane. Because that would be the quickest way to have a to have a violent revolution, um, you know, that would that would redound to the detriment of humans and non-humans alike. Would be to make it illegal. What you need to do is you need to shift the paradigm so that people sort of say, "Yeah, gee, I take seriously. You know, I love my dog, and I my dog's a member of my family. What am I sticking a fork into a cow for? Or I agree that it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering on animals. You know, I think what Michael Vick did was terrible. And and you know, so how can I sit in the in the in the stands watching Michael Vick play football for the Eagles and be angry with Michael Vick while I'm eating a hot dog or hamburg, which is made of an animal that's been tortured every bit as badly as Michael Vick's dogs? So I mean, you know, what we need to do is to think clearly. We have big brains, you know, we can figure these things out, we can figure these problems out. We can come to solutions. Um, but the solutions, I think, have to come on an individual basis. And I'm not saying that, you know, you change people, you know, uh, one of the criticisms I get is they say, well, you know, it takes too long. This is a plate-by-plate a -plate conversion. And the answer is that's nonsense. I'm talking about educating people. And I'm talking about educating large numbers of people. And one of the exciting things about what's happening with the abolitionist movement is, you know, you've got the, you know, the computer technology and the podcasting. And I'm not the only person who's talking about these ideas on podcasts. And there are a lot of other people who are doing these things. And the ideas are getting out and they're getting circulated. And the proof is in the vegan pudding. That is, that is people are responding and they're responding very, very affirmatively. We will be getting back shortly to our interview with Gary Francione. But first, a little musical refreshment. I thought this tune would be apropos. Uh, it is a very simple tune about looking forward. And now in January 2010, uh, we are looking forward to uh, a time when uh, people do apply the ethos of nonviolence and uh, tolerance and acceptance in their lives, and this is about that. It's called Waiting for That Time. It's by Dada Veda. I'm waiting for that time. Yes, I'm waiting for that time. I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time When good folks will hold their heads up high And hungry kids will never pierce the night with their cry I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time 
I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time when we'll judge a man by what he does and not for who his father was. I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time. I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time When we'll love one another regardless of race And go pitch our tents in any old place I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time I'm waiting for that time, yes, I'm waiting for that time. Waiting for that time, Dada Veda. And of course, I think Dada Veda would agree that waiting is not enough. And uh, we now will return to our Gary Francione interview where we will be getting into the topic of what actions we can take to actually bring that world about. Let's listen now. Well, let's just talk uh, very briefly about, you mentioned uh, finishing up this book, and that's obviously one of the key ways that you get these ideas out to a large number yep. of people. So, uh, first of all, what is the when is the book going to be out? What's the title? What's the who's the the um, involved? The uh, the title is at least as I presently understand that it, it was changed last week. Uh, but oh. but uh, the the title as it presently stands is the animal rights debate abolition versus regulation. And it is written, uh, I co-authored it with Robert Garner, who's the chairperson of the political science department at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. Robert is a proponent of what he calls the protectionist approach. I call it new welfareism, he calls it protectionism. But basically he maintains that uh, it makes sense to pursue the wealth, the, the, the regulation of animal exploitation. I take the position that that's morally unjustified and as a, as a theoretical matter and it's, it's inefficient and it, it doesn't work as a practical matter. And um, so what we, the, the book is being published by Columbia University Press. It should be out in April. And the first part of the book, I defend abolition. The second part of the book, he defends 
protectionism. And then in the third part of the book, uh, we have a back and forth in which we ask each other questions, we debate various issues, and talk about uh, key uh, ideas. And um, this book... I like to think that all of my stuff is accessible to people, uh, but um, you know the, the reality is that um, uh, you know people read fewer and fewer books. They buy books, but they don't. You know they they, they like they like things in um, in shorter shorter sound bites, unfortunately. But um, so you know I have some ideas for other things I'm doing, and you know one, one of the things that my website does is try to and, and and it's been extremely successful in doing is taking these ideas and trying to present them in ways, uh, in, you know, in, in, in bite-sized morsels. The, 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 di- you know, the, the difficulty is though, you know, you can, you can read my essays on, on the website and you can look at the, you know, we have some videos, you know, we have some educational videos like theory of animal rights and rights versus welfare and animals as property and animals, law, animal law. And these are sort of short little, little presentations or they're, they're little flash presentations or whatever. And we have them in multiple languages. And, um, and, you know, and a lot of people watch them, uh, and a lot of people read the blog essays. But, you know, it's, it, again, uh, you can't really understand the theory until you get into the, you know, the, you, you can, you can understand a little bit about why, um, the, the, the problem, uh, exists with respect to the property status of animals. Why the property status of animals renders animal welfare reform to be basically useless and counterproductive. But you can't really understand it until you read Animals, Property, and the Law, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is which which is a, a long book. Uh, but but the bottom line is that you know we need to educate ourselves. If we're going to be effective educators, we need to educate ourselves. And and um, you know I understand that people have limited time and and limited attention spans and whatnot. Um, but but people really do need to educate themselves. These ideas are really quite simple. The the ideas in Introduction to Animal Rights are really quite simple. And as 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 I was mentioning a minute ago, I think they really do reflect what most of us believe as a cultural moral matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and and um, and so it's it's a question of educating oneself so that one can educate others. But it's it's exciting. The one thing I do find d- distressing is the extent to which. The people who uh, who oppose this and who 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 support the welfare reform, how unwilling they are to um, to debate these issues. For uh, example, Peter well, Singer. For example, Newton. yeah. When are they going to debate Gary Francione? Well, well yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Um, Several people have tried to set up debates between uh, me and Singer, and he's given various excuses to various people. Um, one one person reported to me that he said that um, he didn't think that people in the movement ought to publicly disagree with each other; that they ought to emphasize emphasize unity, which which really uh, assumes wrongly that Peter Singer and I are in the same movement um, because <laughs> because we ain't and uh, whatever movement he's in I ain't in it um and um but you know his his movement the idea you know you can be a conscientious omnivore that that's a morally defensible position that you can be a flexitarian you know a flexitarian is just an omni but that's you know that's that's the that's the hip way of talking about omnis as we talk about flexitarians and um and so uh, I think that um, that uh, you know S- Singer and I are really uh, not not in the same movement. And so recently, um, uh, Gary Steiner, who had the editorial in the um, in the New York Times, and who's by the way co-editing with me a series on animal ethics that Columbia is going to be launching. And Gary uh, wrote to uh, Peter Singer. 
and um, and invited him to do a uh, a debate with us. Uh, and he actually invited Bernie Rollin from uh, Colorado as well. And um, Singer wrote back and said he wanted a ten thousand dollar fee uh, that he would uh, he would donate to some. Uh, uh, ostensibly vegan organization, which in my judgment isn't vegan, but um, but that he wanted a $10,000 fee and he wanted to discuss what we could discuss and, you know, that, that he had issues with the things that Steiner proposed that we wanted to talk about, which was namely um, uh, the, the idea about an animal having an interest in life because Singer takes the position that uh, that most animals don't have an interest in their lives. So, Killing them is per se not a harm as long as you don't make them suffer during their lives or when you kill them, then you're not really doing anything morally wrong. And then he talks about the luxury of eating meat from animals that have been humanely raised or other animal products. And and uh, so we wanted to talk about that. We also wanted to talk about the whole problem of welfare reform, about the fact that welfare reform simply doesn't work. And um, and Singer Singer uh, didn't wasn't happy with those those topics. And uh, but but that was sort of that was sort of a subsidiary issue anyway, because because uh, um, uh, uh, I wasn't about to participate in any nonsense where he was going to get paid ten thousand um, dollars, <laughs> which was his way of saying. Uh, I, I can't deal with these issues, and uh, and I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with these issues because I can't. Um, and um, you know, by the way, I did actually did I I did have a debate with him some years ago. Uh, we had been um, invited. He and I had been invited to debate some vivisectors at Hahnemann Medical College in Philadelphia, and. Um, it, it was a very surreal experience because shortly after we sat down to start the debate, he was basically agreeing with the vivisectors <laughs> that, that there were some, some uses of animals that could be morally justified. So uh, the vivisectors and Peter were debating with me. And, and uh, we ended up going on. Actually, it was supposed to be for an hour. We, uh, 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 and we, went, we ended up going. And Singer and I ended up debating with each other for quite a long period of time. And um, and uh, I got the feeling after that that he and I would probably never have a formal debate again, and that feeling was right. Um, I've asked Wayne Purcell, you know, who I've known for many years. Uh, and Wayne is at least, um, uh, what Wayne has suggested that perhaps when he has, you know, perhaps next year when he has more time or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so Wayne, Wayne hasn't, hasn't, uh, hasn't officially said no yet, but... Um, but uh, but the bottom line is these people can't deal with these issues and and uh, I I would like the opportunity to have a a spirited debate with Singer with Bernie Rollin with Ingrid Newkirk with Wayne Passell any of these people uh, but the bottom line is Vance that you know our positions are our positions I mean Singer doesn't hide his position he talks about the luxury of eating meat he talks about about the you know he talks about veganism being fanatical. Uh, you know, Bernie Rollin is basically, a, you know, is, is a spokesperson. <laughs> he waits for the, for the, for, for various exploitation industries. And, you know, Newkirk and Purcell take the positions that they take. Uh, and so it's not that, that their positions are secret. And it's not really clear to me, you know, in a sense, one of the reasons why I don't really care about the debating uh, is it sort of feeds into the whole circuses thing because you know these it's a form of entertainment for people um you know if you if you take you know a couple of hours and you read what i write and you read what singer writes then you know exactly where we stand 
Um, and you don't even need to read the books. I mean, you know, you can read some of Singer's interviews and some of the essays he's written, and you can read some of the essays I've written, and you can see exactly where we are. Um, same thing with, with the rest of these people. Part of, part of the reason why I would be interested in debating is I would really love to sort of hear what they have to say in response to particular claims. For example, what does one say? to the response that, that, well, you know, if you look at every single major campaign being promoted, whether it's controlled atmosphere killing of, of chickens, whether it's the gestation crate campaign, whatever campaign we're talking about, these are campaigns that are largely focused on practices that industry has already identified in various ways as economically inefficient. So basically, the animal movement is going after what they, what some of them acknowledge is the low-hanging fruit. And, and so how is this any sort of victory? These are things, look, these are things that are going to be changed anyway. Ironically, they might be changed sooner if they weren't the subject of these controversies. But I mean, the bottom line is that, that the, the animal welfare movement is doing nothing but making animal exploitation more economically efficient. Remember something. Factory farming is a phenomenon that started in the 1950s. So it's a relatively recent phenomenon. And it was based on the idea that, well, if we can make, you know, $10 of profit, you know, with 10 animals, if we shove 100 animals in the same space, we'll make $100 of profit. If we shove 1,000 animals in the same space, we'll make $1,000. Nobody ever figured in 1952 that, well, there's this, you know, they're sentient beings and they're beings with minds and they're beings that will suffer and they're beings that will suffer stress and that stress will result in all sorts of problems. Problems. And so the inefficiencies of factory farming are only becoming understood now. And as, econ as agricultural economists are looking at things like the gestation crate, and they're saying, well, gee, you know, this really doesn't take account of certain, certain facts about pigs. And then if we use alternatives like the electronic sow feeding operation, uh, you know, it's, it's better for the pigs and it's better for production efficiency. These are things that will change because they are economically efficient. And these are, this, so, I mean, I would be curious to sort of hear what some of these proponents of welfare have to say, um, you know, about about these these supposed welfare changes and you know the great things that they're doing. I, I don't think they're doing anything at all, and I would really like to hear them address it because they don't. They really sort of they sidestep it. Uh, they they sidestep it because they don't really engage it. And so you can see what I say about it. You can see what they say about it. But what you don't really see is them engaging. The criticism of it. They simply don't accept the criticism of it. They don't even cognize the criticism. That, I think, is a bad thing. Um, but, you know, the debate itself, that's just a form of entertainment. Okay, well, then I'm going to... This is probably my... There's going to be another extra-long veg gap. This is, the, this is the beauty of... You see, in other countries, they're not allowed to turn off podcasts. But in America, you can turn <laughs> off a podcast if it gets too long. So if they don't like it, they can turn the, the thing off. Okay. Well, my, I just want to follow up on the debate uh, and getting message out. Because if we look at the Gary Francione uh, caricature, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's somebody who's divisive, somebody who's more interested in tearing down people than helping animals, somebody who's 
always wants to argue and debate about these strategies instead of getting the message out is that is there not some and I'm I'm you know basically asking devil's advocate wise a little zero sum game in focusing so much of your keen mind mm-hmm. on new ways to to wake people up to what's wrong with the welfareist message versus just trying to wake as many people up right. to what's right with yours yeah. such that that would then make them see right rather uh, than attacking directly. But remember something, I'm doing both. Um, you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are not involved in the movement. And with those people, I have a completely different approach. But remember something. We've had 200 years of animal welfare, and we've got these mega comp- you know, these mega animal welfare corporations, which really do dominate the scene. And there is an intuitive plausibility to the welfare reform paradigm. I mean, you know, I mean, people, I mean, when people first encounter the idea, they encounter it as an issue of treatment. They say, well, you know, yeah, we're treating animals really badly, so we've got to do better. We've got to treat them better, right. and we've got to, you know, and so, so there is an intuitive plausibility to the welfare, you know, to the welfare model. And so as a result, unfortunately, you do have to spend a fair amount of time dealing with people about, you know, who, who have been convinced that the welfare model is the way to go. And you see, sort of need to explain to them why the welfare model doesn't work, why it's morally inadequate, but why as, an e- as a matter of, I wouldn't even say economics 101, because, you know, some of this stuff is so simplistic that you, you wouldn't encounter it in, in a college course, but, but I mean, the economics of animal exploitation is such that animal welfare can't work. And so you need to sort of explain this stuff to people. Um, you know, the fact that people call me divisive, I, I don't, you know what? There is not one major animal organization in this country that promotes my work or sells my books. And I am proud of that, uh, I have to tell you, because if that ever happened, I would start thinking something is very, really wrong. And I have, I've sold out and my message is getting, my message is getting, uh, 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 diluted. But, you know, divisive means you disagree. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I, I don't agree with the welfareist perspective. Um, and divisive assumes that there is something, some one thing to divide. And the answer is no, 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 absolutely not. The abolitionist approach is extremely different. It's qualitatively different from the welfareist approach. And so by critiquing the welfareist approach, I'm not dividing anything. I'm simply critiquing the welfareist approach. Look. If we're talking about Guantanamo Bay, and we're having a discussion about torture in Guantanamo Bay, and you, you said, you know, um, gee, I, I think we ought to stop that. I think that that's inconsistent with what I understand what it means to be an American. And I think that's inconsistent with American ideals. And I say, you know, yeah, Vance, I agree with you, but I think what we ought to do is we ought to get padding on the boards so that the people who are being waterboarded um, are more comfortable. Um and, and you said, well, gee, you know, I, I don't want to do that. Really, what I want to do is I want to stop the torture altogether. I want to get people to see that this is, this is just not an acceptable way of going about things. You say, well, you know, you're being divisive, Vance. Um, I mean, that's exactly what goes on in these situations. Um, you know, I'm saying, look, what you're doing is not consistent uh, with what I understand to be, um, you know, the, the moral theory. And also, it simply doesn't work as a practical matter. And the response is, rather than explaining to me why I'm wrong and why it really does work, it's to call me names and to say I'm divisive or I'm an absolutist or I'm this or I'm that. And you know what? Um, I've been doing this now and I've been hearing this nonsense. I've been dealing with having people call me these names for a long time. 
And if that's what they want to do, that's fine. It is becoming clear that uh, the emperor has no clothes. Perhaps it's becoming clear that the emperor would rather go naked than to actually engage these ideas in a, in a serious way. That's great. Um, and and uh, trademark that. And um, you know, and 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 uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer to people uh, that you know their way of doing things is simply that's the corporate commodified way. You know, they've commodified compassion. They've turned it into a product that they sell and it's now we're now dealing with what I think is the really counterproductive phenomenon of happy meat and happy eggs and you've got all of these groups now promoting this stuff uh, as as um, as, uh, as as good and and praising uh, you know uh, 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 um, you know what's really interesting is I remember when when I first started shopping at Fresh Fields, you know, 10 years ago, they didn't have a fresh meat and seafood counter. And they had a lot of vegan food. And now they got, they've got they got a meat counter at Whole Foods that is larger than the, 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 the one that they have at these a lot of these other supermarkets. And they're selling all these dead fish and stuff like that and lots and lots of animal products. But there are all these signs up. And all of these signs up um, that... That uh, these are you know, these are happy animals. I mean, these are animals that are sort of waiting in line. They want you know they want to get into you know John Mackey's system because you know they're they're just dying to be slaughtered with the animal compassionate method or whatever nonsense is is being promoted. And um, and and I think it's distressing. Um, I was recently uh, someone recently shared an email that he got someone who was uh, who was protesting uh, Whole Foods and uh, the selling of of animal products at Whole Foods and got an email uh, basically uh, uh, from somebody who purported to be uh, speaking on behalf of PETA saying, um, no, don't do that because, you know, Whole Foods is really a great organization. And, you know, I started off working with PETA in the early 1980s. And if you told me that one day uh, PETA would be forming um, partnerships with the fast food chains and would be reprimanding uh, advocates for uh, for protesting uh, what goes on at a place like Whole Foods. I would have said to you, Vance, that level of cynicism I cannot even embrace. <laughs> and uh, and in fact, that's where it's gotten. Yeah. So, all right. Well, then, just to try to end on a a, uh, a more positive note. And this mm. always seems to be my <laughs> every time I interview you. Mm. Like, how can we end this on a positive note? I'm very positive. I know you're positive. I just, just it, it's. I, I want to have uh, for people who worldwide. They th- we have a lot of listeners in different countries, as I'm sure you do. Um, they may be coming across this for the first time. Uh, they may be in some isolated place where you know they don't have all of the luxuries that we have in Philadelphia of being able to meet other people, being have vegan places to eat, and so forth. Is there something that you could say to, to these people who are just getting the abolitionist message and how what they can do with it, other than personally, you know, altering their eating and consumption habits? Is there something, some advice you have to them on communicating a positive message? Yeah, sure. Look, first of all, let me just say, I'm very, very optimistic. 
Um, I'm getting lots and lots of communications from people who are coming to the abolitionist message as omnivores. I mean, these are people who are not animal people. These are people who are coming across it because, you know, somebody in some other progressive movement turned them on to it or whatever, they read something. I'm getting lots of emails from people who are coming to this as omnis and going vegan in a fairly short period of time. Um, and I also believe, you know, when you were saying just now, well, apart from their own, they're becoming vegan themselves. Let me say this. I think becoming vegan is the most important activist advocate step that you can take. I do not think we can downplay this. Um, and, and number one. Number two, what can people do? They can get on the website. They can download the pamphlets. They're free. They don't have to pay anything. They can, and they're, they're in, you know, they're in 12, 13 different languages, whatever, and we'll add more as time goes on. We've got a whole bunch in the pipeline. And, and, um, you know, they can, they can hand out literature. They can talk to their friends. Look, the ability, each of us has a social circle. You know, of, of, uh, uh, in, and it's, you know, with some of us, it may be a fairly large social circle. And, and the sorts of things that we can do in terms of creative, nonviolent vegan education, there, it's remarkable what the individual can do. I see this all over the place. I see people getting turned on to this. And then they start doing things that they've not done before. Like, um, uh, you know, there's a person in Germany, for example, who's never really engaged in, in, in this sort of, of advocacy before, who now sets up a little information table at various places and, you know, and, and distributes information and discusses things with people and talks one-on-one -on -one to people. There are people who are going out and talking to community groups. There are people who are talking to their kids' schools and things like that. So there are all sorts of things that people can do. And, and people, wherever they are, wherever they are, whether you know they're whether they're here or you know whether they are in in a remote place somewhere, there are two things that they can do. They can always turn off a podcast, just as we can in America <laughs> if it's too long. But they can go vegan because because you know the what I what I frequently hear as well. It's easy for people in North America uh, because you know they've got so many. That's nonsense. It's easy for people in North America to eat a junk food diet that's vegan because we've got all these processed foods here that we didn't have, you know, years ago. Right. So if you want to go from eating a crappy, you know, standard American diet to eating a crappy vegan diet that's high in salt and high in, you know, everything except nutrients, you can do that. Um, but but if you really, I mean, you know, health is an important uh, important aspect of this. And, and um and you know sometimes and i want i want to sort of end with this because i think there's a tendency to to think that the moral issue the health issue and the environmental issues these are separate issues. They're, they actually merge with each other. We have a moral obligation to take care of ourselves, to not do violence to ourselves. We also have a, a, an obligation to the animals that live in the environment, to the sentient beings that live in the environment, not to destroy their environment. We have an obligation to each other not to destroy, to other humans not to destroy the environment because the environment is essential for all of our continued sustenance. So wherever people are, they can eat a vegan diet. And they can eat, a, I mean, all you need, Fruits, vegetables, and nuts. And you can get those things almost any place. And the more whole foods you're eating, I don't mean whole foods from the whole food store, I mean the more whole foods that you are eating, the better your health will be. Uh, and, and, um, and so I am very optimistic because I think this is catching on. I think it's catching on. I think people are finally, you know, they're, they're, they're getting it. They're getting the fact that, that it's not just a matter of animal suffering, that 
inflicting death on an animal, even if the animal is treated reasonably well, that's a harm. Just like, you know, if I shot you in the middle of the night while you were sleeping, it's better than if I torture you, but I'm still harming you. Right. People are finally getting the moral message. They're understanding that eating animal products presents a tremendous uh, uh, issue of, uh, of morality. They're recognizing that eating animal products isn't good for our health. And animal products, it's an ecological disaster. So, the, you know, and, and, and look, the bottom line is, as long as we are killing 56 billion animals a year, every year for food, not including fish and other aquatic animals, 56 billion. As long as we are doing that, and the best justification we have for that is it tastes good, we will never see peace. We have the ability to change the world if we want. The sad thing is how easy it would be and how we all sit around thinking, oh, that's utopian. Oh, that's idealistic. Sorry. What's idealistic in a negative way, what is crazy and unrealistic is to believe that we can perpetuate, we can continue to live this way and that it isn't going to destroy us, destroy our planet and destroy us as moral and spiritual beings. It's already doing that. And if we don't respond to that that spiritual and moral corrosion and to that environmental degradation and to what we're doing to our health, to the health of our children, to, to you know the fact that animal agriculture is condemning a substantial part of the world's population to starvation, the fact that animal agriculture uses water that is going to become as precious a commodity, more precious than oil is. And I mean, the fact that we're not confronting this, that's what I regard as unrealistic. That's what I regard as fantasy. My my proposals aren't fantasy at all. They're quite realistic. And it's something that we can do. The world is vegan if you want it. So I would end by saying to people, look, if you aren't vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly easy to do. Don't listen to this propaganda that becoming a vegan is very difficult. It's extremely easy to do. It's better for your health. It's better for the planet. Most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. Violence is wrong. Just say no to violence. <laughs> All right. Very well uh, tied up there. Thank there you, you go. Gary Francione, thanks for joining us again on Veg. And the dogs, the dogs were like, I mean, you can hear the their, their you can hear the dogs walking you around. Walking, you yeah. can hear, their, you hear their, their nails on the wood, but they've been really good. I think they're really interested in this. I, I think, I think they, I think, and the dogs are all vegan. I might want, I want, I want, I want to tell you all that. The dogs are all vegan. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Vince. All right. Okay, that is just about going to do it for this Super Stuff VegCast 76. You will note, I said we have a link on our main page to Gary's podcast. He now has those collected on one page where we can make one link. And so we put that up there, and we're trying to get uh, other ones up there. If you have a vegetarian or vegan-oriented podcast uh, and you have them collected on one page, send us that link, uh, and we will put it up on the front page of EdgeCast, we want to spread the love, spread the news, uh, spread the information and uh, the message of nonviolence and help bring about that time that Dada Veda was singing about. But for now, we are out of here.
All right, I want to thank our sponsors, Luna and Larry's Coconut Bliss. No soy, no dairy, no comparison. It's the evolution of ice cream. Of course, I also want to thank Gary Francione for allowing us to come and sit in his study with his dogs and get his take on where things are heading in 2010. And I also want to thank Dada Veda for allowing us to play Waiting for That Time on VegCast 76. We'll be back with a more conventionally formatted VegCast 77 soon. But until then, please get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.